Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lorenzo. Um, yeah, no, I absolutely, before I fill you guys in on our recent adventure from San Diego to Los Angeles, um, just want to say I love Lorenzo. I love Casey. They are men that love Jesus and want to see the gospel advance in this city. And I'm sure you guys have seen and experienced um, and um, observed that in their lives. So thank you, Lorenzo. Thank you to the other leaders, Kyle, who managed to help me get here safely and make, made me feel welcome. Uh, my wife is here. Um, she's over there. She's so lovely. Put up your hand, lovely. <laughs> you lovely. Um, and I've got some of my team as well from the church plant sitting just in front of her in um, the, ro the row in front of her. Just thankful for what God has started to do in San Diego. Um, we love San Diego. Oh my goodness. We lived in LA for seven years. Um, we love LA, but we definitely believe and have experienced that San Diego is so much better. <laughs> Sorry to offend you guys, but so um, I have three kids, been married for um, nine years um, and originally from London. My wife and I arrived here in 2010 with four suitcases for me to attend seminary and I never would have imagined that I would have three American children um, <laughs> after seven years and I would be planting a church in San Diego, um, America's finest city, so <laughs> thankful for that. So San Diego, this morning we wake up, I go to Panera, I love Panera bread actually, um, <laughs> just to finish off my sermon, we um, planned to leave, yeah, we left at 12.15, met some friends in um, Copa Vida and Sorrento Valley, um, and then we started to drive up. Um, my wife was driving because I had not really finalized and tweaked my sermon to where I wanted it. So I had a drive, um, and I was sitting in a passenger seat, of course. Um, beginning of the journey, I just thought, let me just put my head back and relax. Um, driving, driving, I think we were an hour in, and it's bang. And I wake up, my laptop falls in front of me. I look in front of me, and my wife has just hit. Um, another car in front of us. And this, ha this happened a few hours ago. And so I get out, I look, luckily, it's a minor accident, nothing, um, the, you know, it's just nothing really bad has happened. I speak to the guy, he sounds gracious, but I don't think he's going to be gracious because he was trying to show me that there was some sort of dent on his car, but there wasn't. Um, and so we're going to be doing talking to the insurance about it. And so we figure it all out. I'm, you know, I'm trying to get here on time. And so we get in the car, we, I start to drive because my wife just couldn't drive. She had broken down just in tears. And so I start driving. I know I'm like my sermon, I've got to work on it. And we're driving, we're driving, we're about 40 minutes here. And then my daughter Kezia, um, who's sitting in the back seat, just starts to vomit everywhere. <laughs> this, right, look, pastors have a habit of exaggerating. I am not. And so she begins to vomit 
everywhere in her car. And I'm like, what is going on? And so luckily there was a Target not too far through the next exit. And my wife was like, let's stop at Target. We got off and stopped it at Target, took her out, I stripped her clothes off. They went into Target to buy some new clothes. And here I am in the Target car park, just cleaning, cleaning, vomit everywhere. I have washed my hands, so you can shake my hand after. But like, it was crazy. And in my mind, I'm thinking, this is just not the wrong time. This shouldn't be happening now. Um, I am scheduled to preach somewhere. And so we got here at 4.30. I'm out the car and I'm just frazzled now, right? I'm just here, right? But it doesn't seem real that I am here. And so um, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, you are good. Father, may we not just use this as an introductory and move on to requests. Father, when we think of your goodness, we could be here for many, many hours. You are good. And your goodness was fully displayed through the life, death, resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we get to experience your goodness in the most magnificent way. And so, Father, thank you for allowing my family and I to get here safely, Father. The roads are dangerous. Thankful, Father, that you've got me here in time and you've given me the opportunity to share your word. Father, I am weak right now. I'm not as prepared as I wanted to be, but Father, you have promised us because of your goodness, when we are weak, you are strong. You really are. And so, Father, it's your word and it's your spirit. It has nothing to do with me. Father, yes, I've worked hard. I've been diligent with my own effort, but Father, even if I would have prepared fully I would still need to rely on you to take your word and bring it to bear on the hearts of the men and women here. And so, Father, may your spirit do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts 20. Acts 20. And we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 32. Acts 20, 25 to 32. Follow me as I read. And now... Behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which is obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away 
the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone, of, everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In the fall of 2010, my wife and I arrived in Los Angeles from London. We made the journey across the pond so that I could embark on a journey, a four-year journey for training at a seminary. Before arriving in the States, we had been on a 10-hour flight. And before we boarded our plane for our 10-hour flight, we had been involved in a lengthy and emotional goodbyes with family and friends in London. It was extremely difficult to say goodbye to our family and friends. And the reason is, most of them didn't know when we would return because plane tickets from London to Los Angeles or Los Angeles to London are really expensive. Also, it was difficult because we would be thousands of miles from family. Like most of you, I don't do well with goodbyes. When I have to say goodbye to someone, when I have to say farewell to someone, it's difficult really difficult and our passage for today is a section within Paul's farewell speech to the leaders of the church in Ephesus and like most farewell speeches it's emotional but unlike most farewell speeches Paul provided the leaders of the church with timeless wisdom and advice and counsel and instruction for faithful ministry. So this is the context. Paul decides to go to Jerusalem. And on the way to Jerusalem, he decides to stop at a city called Miletus. And during his brief layover, he decides to send for the leaders in the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was about 30 miles north of Miletus. And so these men are called, these men turn up at the location where Paul tells them to get to, and I can imagine this, they're all turning up not knowing exactly what this urgent meeting is about. You can imagine some of them walking in and walking straight to Paul and saying, Paul, what's going on? Is everything okay? And Paul's like, it's okay. The meeting's going to start soon. Relax. And as soon as everyone arrives, Paul begins the meeting by filling them in and talking to them about his life and ministry alongside them. As we've worked closely together for the past three years, Paul says, I've done my best to model for you what a life of faithfulness in ministry looks like. 
He goes on to make it clear to them that despite resistance and opposition and threats, he's not shied away, right? The scripture uses shrink back. He's not shrunk back from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. In other words, he's not shied away from telling them what they needed to hear, even if it was hard for them to hear. And as he's sharing about his life of ministry with them, you can imagine this scene. They're probably all sitting around the table or sitting on the floor, and Paul is at the head of the table. And as he's sharing about his life and his ministry, I can imagine some of them just leaning forward and nodding in agreement because they had observed Paul in ministry. And then... He breaks the news to them. He says, guys, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. And this wasn't so surprising or shocking because possibly, possibly they had heard Paul mentioned several times and talked about his desire for Jerusalem. So this wasn't so surprising. But what is shocking and possibly surprising for them is that Paul tells them in verse 25 that he's possibly not going to see them again. It says in verse 25, look at that with me. It says, Paul says, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And you can imagine as he says that, There is silence. You could hear a pin drop. And I'm sure there were men in that room that were really close to Paul. And it was getting emotional in there. Really emotional in there. It was an emotional moment. And after a moment of silence and emotion, Paul continues. He says, I... As as I leave, never to see you again, the most important thing I I want you to be reminded of is that I have faithfully shared with you all that God wants you to know. And because of this, I will not be held responsible for anyone's demise, verse 26 tells us. And then he transitions from his life of faithful ministry to passing on to them specific instructions on how they can faithfully minister to the people God has given them. This is how I've been faithful, Paul is telling them. Now this is how you can be faithful in ministry. And one of the most fascinating things about Paul's farewell speech to these leaders is that it contains, it contains valuable truths for all believers. And I have had an an amazing time studying this because this farewell speech is for leaders, right? 
But as you study it more, you realize that it contains incredible and valuable truths for all believers. And so the reason why this is important for you is that it applies to you. It's relevant for you. Although Paul is speaking to the leaders of the church in Ephesus many, many years ago, right? This is relevant for you now. Why? Because it's the timeless word of God. And it's not only relevant for you because of that reason, it's relevant for you because as you read, you will gain and see and observe valuable truths about you as a believer. Here's the big idea that sits on top of all that we're going to be studying. The big idea. Vital instructions for leaders reveals valuable truths for all believers. Let me say that again. This is a big idea. Vital instructions for leaders reveals valuable truths for all believers. And the first valuable truth for all believers we discover is that we are greatly loved. We are greatly loved. Look at verse 28. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. As we've heard until this point, Paul has been giving the leaders of this church in Ephesus snapshots of his life and ministry um, for the purpose of showing them what a life of faithful ministry looks like. He has been using himself as an example for them to imitate. Right? We've been seeing this. We've been talking about this. And what he does next is that he transitions from his life to giving them specific instructions on how they should lead and how they can be faithful as he was. Pay close attention to yourself and to the flock is his introductory statement. This act of paying close attention, right, can be likened to the way parents watch their kids. I have three incredible, beautiful, amazing kids, right? They are awesome, right? But as a parent, I have this incredible supernatural ability to know where they are at at all times. I'm a parent, and if some of you have been around parents, you know this for sure. Parents pay close attention to their kids. Even if their kids are in the next room, some parents just have this ability to know whether they're going to hurt themselves or not. It's incredible. And so this is what is happening here. Paul is saying, pay close attention to yourself and to the people God has entrusted you with. Another thing worth highlighting in this is that he instructs them to pay close attention to themselves as well as to the congregation, right? Pay close attention to yourself as well as the people God has entrusted you with. Robert Murray McShane, he's a famous 19th century Scottish Presbyterian pastor once said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. Matt Shane here, what he's doing is basically emphasizing what Paul is sharing with the leaders in Ephesus. 
He's saying, hey guys, I know you're awesome. I know you've got so much potential and you're gifted, but guess what? I want you to focus on your own health as a leader because you can only be effective in ministry as long as you're healthy as a believer. Paul then moves on to the reason why they should exercise this level of attention to themselves and to their people. Firstly, because their leadership has been given unto them by God. We see this um, in verse the beginning, in verse 28. But most importantly, and this is my point here, most importantly, their lives have been all, all obtained by the blood of Jesus. Read this with me. Read verse 28 with me. It says, Pay close attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, all right, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And this, the fact that they have been purchased by the blood of Jesus is the primary reason Paul urges the Ephesian elders to shepherd and love and care for their people with the same care and commitment a shepherd displays to the sheep. God is incredible. He went to great lengths in order to save us. God sent his only son, Jesus, to die and suffer and be humiliated for us. And that is the gospel. And that is the core and the pinnacle of the gospel. God went to great lengths to save us from our sins and provide everything we need for a life of godliness. And he obtained you and all of these things for you, not with gold or silver, but with the blood price of his own life. And in doing so, he displayed this. He displayed how much he absolutely loved you. We are greatly loved by God. And every leader of God's church is instructed to care for the people. God, through his Holy Spirit, has entrusted to them because God was willing to shed the blood of his son for a sinful, messed up, an unworthy church. And in doing so, we are remember, we are reminded of God's great love for us. Romans 5, 8 reminds us, it says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this is the truths we've discovered from this first point. We are greatly loved and we've seen it. The second truth we discover for all believers within Paul's address to the leaders in Ephesus is that we are, get ready for this, we are in great danger. We are in great danger. Look at verse 29 to 30. It says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, 
And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Again, Paul has been urging them to pay close attention to themselves and to the church. And the reason why is because God went to great lengths in order to save them. And then Paul provides them with another reason why they must pay close attention to themselves and to the church. He's saying, when I'm gone, says Paul, when I depart from you, guess what's going to happen? Fierce wolves will come in among you. Obviously. This is not talking about real life wolves, right? As if Paul leaves and these voracious wolves... No, Paul's not talking about that. What's happening here, and I know you guys get it, is Paul is using a metaphor. It's a figure of speech used to describe individuals who exploit the weak. They are active enemies of the faith. Paul is saying that when I'm gone... These wicked individuals will come in among you, and like wolves among sheep, they have evil intentions. It also says that they will not spare the flock. And this is true because I've never, I, I went on Google just to, like, to, um, to type in wolves and sheep and everything, and I saw this picture that came up with a wolf hugging a sheep, right? And I looked at that, and I was just like, that just will never happen, right? Because if a ferocious wolf, right, has a sheep in its just fluffy white sheep in its trap, I've never ever would imagine that a wolf will say, well, I'm going to eat you. No, I'm not going to eat you. And just like, no, that's never going to happen. Never going to happen. When wolves have sheep in their trap, wolves destroy sheep. And so what is happening here is that in the same way these wicked men, when they come into the church, will be merciless. They will show no mercy or pity. They will make their way among the church and they will be ruthless. Why? Because like fierce wolves, they are strong and cunning, they are persistent, and they are insatiable and merciless in their appetite for devouring Christians. And they will. Paul has more warnings for them. He goes on to predict something even more subtle and frightening than wolves. He warns that false teachers will arise from within the congregation. Look at verse 30. It says, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Did you guys read? Let's read that again, right? Let's read that again. Verse 30 just scares me. It says, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The attacks from within will be from false teachers 
who are false teachers because this is what they do. They speak twisted things. Alexander Strouch, who is best known for one of the best books on Christian leadership, said this. They will not out and out deny the truth of God's word, for that would be too obvious and ineffective. Instead, they will pervert truth. They will mix truth with error, reinterpret the truth, and change the meaning of words to give the illusion of truth. False teachers are not easy to identify. And the reason why is Matthew 7.15 helps us know this when it warns us to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Basically, these false teachers right, are being described as wolves in sheep clothing. They might be difficult to recognize, but think, thankfully in God's word, he's helped us know some of the characteristics of what a false teacher is. So what are the telltale signs of a false teacher? Tim Challies, who's a popular um, Christian blogger, provides us with these common characteristics of false teachers, and these are all based on scripture, right? First of all, false teachers teach what blatantly contradicts an essential teaching of the Christian faith. Did you guys get that? So, oh, oh, the resurrection. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if the resurrection happened. Oh, oh, the virgin birth. Or no, I, I'm not sure. Um, Mary was too young, and they just start to mingle and mess and contradict with the essential truths of the Christian faith. Next, false teachers use Christianity as a means of personal enrichment. Right? This means they're only interested in the Christian faith to the extent that it fills their wallet. And you guys have probably seen it, and most of you have probably seen it on TV and all of those places or online these days, right? These are men who are using their leadership and Christianity to abuse people so that they can get rich. Next, false teachers use their position of leadership to take advantage of other people. False teachers also use false doctrine to disrupt or destroy a church. They bring strife, not love. They generate factions, not unity, and they desire discord, not harmony. Next, false teachers, they don't care nothing for what God wants and everything for what men want. They are the men pleasers rather than the God pleasers. They crave popularity and praise from the world. And lastly, false teachers are obsessed with novelty, originality, and speculation. And these are some of the characteristics of a false teacher which is revealed in Scripture. And I'm sure some of you here 
might have experienced or seen false teachers in your time being a Christian? Absolutely. But Paul is making it clear that this church, collective church, and I'm sorry to say this, but it's true, will have fierce wolves who will come in from the outside and false teachers who will arise from the inside. Before I move on, word of caution, right? Word of caution, promise me that you guys are not going to get trigger happy with this whole false teacher thing, right? <laughs> Just promise me that you're not going to do that, that you're not going to like be all about looking for false prophets everywhere. Yes, we need to be vigilant. I totally get it. But just promise me that in your groups, when you guys hang out, when one of you just says something that doesn't make sense, I don't want you to cry wolf and be like, Lorenzo, Casey, there's a fault. No, 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 no. Relax. I think and I believe false prophets, the way to identify them, it's not just a one-time deal, but it's a pattern of life. And you will see these patterns over and over and over again in their life. And as a result of their twisted speech, they will draw away disciples after them. Disciples. You are disciples of Jesus. And as a result of their twisted speech, these false prophets, they will draw some of you. Draw some of you away. In view of these dangers, I heard Paul urges the leaders, uh, urges the leaders again in verse 31 to be alert and remember and follow his example of faithful ministry. Faithful ministry. Collective Church, this passage is not just leadership insights from a man to some people in history. They are relevant for churches throughout history, and they apply to you. And because this is true, because this, if this is the case, there are probably individuals in this church who the Bible would identify as being fierce wolves who are bent on carrying out deceptive and destructive work amongst you. And so be alert. Be alert. And the question in relation to that is what will protect you? What will enable you to survive these constant attacks from within what will help you yes i've given you some characteristics to look for but ultimately what will enable you to not only identify false teachers and fierce wolves that will come in what will enable you to resist and to protect yourself and paul helps us with that god's word is awesome by the way isn't it I just love when you read and you meditate and you ponder. It just provides truth after truth and it connects this and connects that. And so in the same way, Paul and his verses provide us with what we need as believers to protect ourselves from some of the dangers. And it's found in verse 32. It says, And now I commend you to God, and to the word of his grace, 
which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul's been saying, you guys, this is your identity. You are greatly loved. Greatly loved by God. And then he starts to warn them of coming attacks from fierce wolves. And I can imagine these leaders are in the room and they're listening and they're freaked out. They're like, Paul, help us here. How can we protect ourselves? How can we protect our flock? And Paul says, I commend you to God and his word. To commend someone is to entrust someone or something to the care or protection of someone, right? For example, parents who need some alone time, right? And who need a date, what do they do? They get a babysitter and they entrust their kids to that babysitter. And I'm smirking because I have like a a 15-month who is hard work. And sometimes when babysitters come and I, I'm just like, darling, just hand them over and let's just go. <laughs> it's just, you know, but that's what happens. Some of you, all of you, entrust your money to a bank and we entrust or ourselves and commend something that is valuable to us to someone else. Why? Because we trust, right? We trust them with it. And in the same way, Paul, before he departs, wants to entrust the church in Ephesus, not to the care of the leaders, not to the care of the leaders, but ultimately to God and his word. In the face of furious wolves, false teachers, and constant attacks, how could the church possibly remain faithful to the word of God? How can that be? No matter how difficult things get, they can rely on God himself. There is hope in Paul's farewell because he isn't placing the church into the hands of the elders. He's not doing that. He is committing the church to God himself. And as a result, God and his word is able to, it tells us, it tells us in verse 32, it's able to build them up and to give them the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In the safekeeping of God and his word, the church will not be destroyed, but will grow spiritually. In commending them to God, Paul is basically saying, hey, don't rely on me, right? And I don't want you to have your people rely on you right? Rely on God himself through his word. This is why Paul, throughout this, this, this farewell speech, he places an incredible emphasis on the ministry of God's word. Verse 25 tells us that the activity he was involved in before he told them that they might not see him again was proclaiming the kingdom. Verse 26, he says that he is innocent of the blood of people. Why? Because he's been faithful in communicating and declaring the whole counsel of God. Verse 31, he highlights his faithfulness in admonishing or instructing or counseling the people with the word of God. And finally, 
In verse 32, which we're on, he commends them to God and his word because he recognizes the effectiveness, the effectiveness of God's word for maturity in Christ. So, collective church, what will cause you to grow in your love and affection for Christ is the ministry of the word. Collective church, what will protect every single one of you from the many dangers out there is God through his word. I love, so I've been checking out your website and everything, and I love your discipleship and what's going on here and how you guys are having neighborhood dinners and also you guys have these um, gender-specific discipleship groups. And I was on Instagram and I follow Lorenzo, of course, and I remember him showing a picture of some of his ideas when it comes to discipleship. And I loved what he put when it comes to what should be the focus of you guys' time together when you get into these discipleship group and what he said was no curriculum bible that was it right and that is true because they understand they want to commend you guys to god and his word because it's god's word that will nourish you it's god's word that will mature you and help you grow in your love for christ and it's god's word that will protect you it's incredible. They want to make the Bible the centerpiece of your lives. Your maturity, your growth as a Christian does not lie in structures or boundaries you build around yourself. And those boundaries are good, whether it's accountability or whether it's this, it's good. But your growth, your maturity, your protection... It's determined by your acceptance and obedience to all of Scripture. Absolutely is. And so you have leaders that love you enough to want to shape and to want to cause you to delight in who God is through his word. God has given us his word. And when we read and preach and teach God's word, God is speaking to us. He really is. And he's given us, we are so lucky to have this. We are so blessed not only to have this, but we are so blessed to have God's spirit in us that enlightens and illuminates God's word and even gives us a desire not just to read it, but to be obedient to it. And so collective church, they are commending you to God and his word, and you have the decision to make. Will you accept and obey God's word? And listen, I don't want this to be this religious thing. Um, what needs to happen is this, that you guys initially start off being disciplined in reading God's word, and the more you read it, you'll begin to delight in it. Right? Because you're going to be seeing all these amazing truths and so determine, determine to love God and determine to love Him through His Word. And the more, I mean, Psalm 119, Psalm 19 talks about how sweet and precious God's Word is, and it's sweeter than honey. It really is. 
God is so good. God is so gracious. He's given us his best. He's gone to great lengths to save us through the blood of his son so that we may have a relationship with him through prayer and the ministry of the word. So this is what Paul's doing. We've seen that instructions for leaders reveals valuable truths for all of you guys. And those valuable truths is that you are incredibly, you are greatly loved. Why? Because God sent his son and who died for you. And also you are incredibly, you, you know, God has given you so much. He really has. And there's not much I can say to cultivate in you a burning radical desire for who God is. There's not. Only God, his spirit can do it. And so pray for it. And God will answer you. Pray with me.